All right, hello and welcome to Fantastic Classics. My name is Chris Lamazny, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Austin Pelosi. How you doing, world? So each episode, we'll discuss a specific classic rock album, and we'll also go off on some tangents. Uh, I just want to mention before, just like I did the past few episodes, that by no means are we experts on any of the subjects that we talk about. We're just casual fans, and we just like to have casual conversations about it. That's what this podcast is all about. So if you like hearing our conversations, I really appreciate that. I appreciate everybody listening to this podcast and hearing us talk. So let's uh, let's get started. Now, Austin, before before I tell everybody what the album of the week is, I want to ask you, what do you think the best year for music is? Because this is a heavily debated topic in the rock and roll world. Well, you personally, what year do you think would be the best year? I honestly don't know because it feels like a trick question. I want to say... At some point in the the 60s, I feel like towards like the mid to late 60s was kind of the, the revolution of rock and roll. But if you had to pick one specific year from the 60s, what, which year do you think it would be? I'm going to say 1969. 69? That's not a bad one. You got The Beatles, Abbey Road. I had to, I'm sorry. I had to do it to you. I had <laughs> I to. I, I walked right into that one. Uh, you got The Stooges' first album. You got uh, Jimi Hendrix released... Uh, no, 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 no. He didn't release uh, Electric Lady. That was the year before. There's definitely a lot that came out in 69, though. But it is a heavily debated topic, and a lot of people will say 69. Some people will say 1967. Uh, that's the Summer of Love. You have like stuff like Disraeli Gears by Cream, and you have The Doors' first album. Uh, and a lot of other people will say like 1991, because that's the birth of grunge. So you have a lot of grunge albums that come out that year. You got Nirvana's Nevermind. You got Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You got 10 by Pearl Jam. You have so many. Now, me personally, I have one that not a lot of people will say. My favorite year of music is 1979. I feel like the best albums came out in that specific year. I don't know what it is. It just I remember listening to like a few albums before, noticing that they all came out in this year. I'm like, was this like just the lost best year for music? So I actually have a list of the albums. This is not even the whole list. This is just like a portion of the list that I found, and I shortened it down as best I could. And it's still a lot. It's still yeah. We're still just skimming the surface. It's but, still sixteen albums. But all, but, but all, when you realize that all of this has happened within a single year, and just realizing, like in the future that we are now, like looking back at it, like wow, music really did. Like all this came out that same year. Like that's crazy. Yeah. So I'm gonna read off the shortened list that i have of albums that came out in 1979 now try not to freak out because this is a huge this is a this is an amazing list i have to say this is one of the best lists that i've ever seen so 1979 we've got pink floyd's the wall oh, we got michael jackson off the wall oh we got it's pretty funny oh yeah <laughs> we got acdc highway to hell oh we have fleetwood mac tusk oh. we've got super tramp Breakfast in America, Tom oh. Petty and the Heartbreakers, Damn the Torpedoes, oh. Joy Division, Unknown Pleasures, oh. Talking Heads, Fear of Music, Whoa. Led Zeppelin's In Through the Outdoor, The oh. Police, Regatta the Blanc, oh. Van Halen's Van Halen 2, oh. Motorhead, Overkill, oh. The Cars, Candio, oh. The Eagles, The Long Run, oh. Thin Lizzy's Black Rose, A Rock Legend, oh. and if there's one main one that everybody has, has noticed that I haven't said yet, I've done that for a specific reason. It's because it's today's episode. Today, Austin, can you guess the album of the week that we are doing? Well, even though you didn't say everything that came out that year, I think there's one important one that you're missing, Chris, and that has to be without a doubt. The Clash's iconic album, 
London Calling. Well, let's see, because I haven't rolled the drum roll yet, so let's see if it right, is, in well, fact, thanks. London Calling. Let me, uh... <laughs> It is on the calling. Holy! Oh my God! You got it, Austin. Who would have guessed, guessed except for me and you and anybody who looked at the actual podcast and saw that uh the unreleased it, podcast? Right, <laughs> We're the only ones that know about this. But yeah, yeah, uh, it is London Calling, and I'm very excited to be talking about this uh, this album today because is is one of I'm gonna say this about a lot of albums, but it is one of my well, favorite it's per, albums. It's Chris. All I can say is it is one of my favorites. It is one of my favorites. I have to say this is a guaranteed fantastic classic. <laughs> <laughs> just we'll just talk like Casey Kasem for the rest of the the rest of the show. So anyway, in 1979, The Clash released this undisputed classic, <laughs> London Calling. <laughs> it was met with immense success both in the UK, Australia, and the United States. Just talk like that the entire time. <laughs> it, it, and it, that's what makes us blow up. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no. like that. It definitely could. I'm not going to lie. Folks, we've been lying to you. This is, this is actually how we talk. This is, this is indeed how we talk all the time. People are very... Very annoyed with us. Holding relationships is damn near impossible. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, so let's let's get into talking about about the album. How big of a Clash fan are you, Austin? You you listen to the Clash? Uh, I have listened to them th- quite throughout my teenage years, mm-hmm. uh, high school, college era. I feel like the Clash aren't really talked about or represented well in the rock and roll and. Punk? I, would, I, would you consider them punk? Well, that's the that's a tricky thing to. It's hard to really nail them because if you were if you were to call them punk for their first two albums, I would wholeheartedly agree with you because they definitely were punk. By the time they get to this album, which is their third album, London Calling, they kind of like go off in a different direction in a really good way. Now, like at first, there were some people who didn't really like. They they thought that they were abandoning their punk roots and. That's really just punks. Punks are just, oh, I like the earlier stuff, you know, all those, you know, any, everybody knows the type of person like that. But this this album, I think, is amazing because of the fact that they went out of their comfort zone and they tried doing a bunch of things that they were really into because this album blends punk elements with a lot of other uh, music elements. It, it blends punk with with some jazz elements, with with rockabilly, with reggae, with roots music, with R and B, just everything they were listening to. They're like, hey, let's let's throw this in. Let's see if we can make a song that sounds like this. Basically, what we talked about in the last episode, yeah, where we talked about how you know certain bands like Queen can go back and create, you know, even though they're rock band, you know, they're uh, you know a rock band, they can go back and make a song in the era of disco. You know, that just shows, like, how good they are. And I think that this album is a fantastic start of basically, like, history for, for them. If anyone can talk about any Clash album, this is the album to talk about. This this will definitely come up in discussions of not just the Clash's best album, but of any classic rock album. This is almost always placed in, like, the top, as... like, 20, 30 greatest albums of all time, and rightfully so. Exactly. I can't think of what one bad song on this album. It took me a little bit to get into it, I'm not gonna lie. I don't know what it was, but, like, years ago when I first started listening to it, it took me a bit, but, like, it really grew on me. It really, the you... song stuck with me, and then it made me realize everything on it, from, from the, the first track, from, from London Calling to Train in Vain, every single song on this album, it's just, just banger after banger after banger. I mean, starts off with London Calling, goes into Brand New Cadillac, which is uh, a cover song, goes into Jimmy Jazz, which is about this pretty much like made up like underground serial killer. 
goes into Hateful. Rudy Can't Fail, I think, is my absolute favorite track on there. It's probably a contender with the right profile. But Rudy Can't Fail, I think, is just amazing because it has, like, these reggae elements that you wouldn't really expect from... A rock band, especially a, a UK-based rock band. Yeah, who's, like, pretty much marketed as a punk band. Like, you, like if you look at The Clash, they have, you know, this, like, this punk look. They got, like, the leather jackets and, like, the, the greased back hair and everything like that. They got they got the greaser look. They not have, to, like... The, not to mention that the, the particular album cover that we're talking about is uh, him smashing his bass guitar. Yeah, it's it's actually a really cool story, the, the history of the album cover for... Chris, why don't you tell us about that album cover? Because I know you know a lot more about it than, well, than you, I would do. You know what, Austin? I will tell you about this album cover. <laughs> I love this album cover so much. I am currently wearing it... As a shirt, this is a great album. So the cover of uh, London Calling is a black and white photo of their bassist Paul Simonon smashing his bass guitar. Now the reason he was smashing uh, is up for debate. I've heard multiple different things. One of the, one of the things I heard about it was well they they were playing at the Palladium in New York sometime in 1979. I think like September 1979. Whatever the reason was that he smashed his guitar is either. He was annoyed because they were too far apart. The band was too far apart. They were used to playing like smaller venues, and so they were usually closer, and it was easier for them to play. And on the in Palladium, they were very spread apart, and like things just weren't going well. They weren't having a good time. So I've heard that, and then I've also heard that the reason was because he couldn't have like he, he couldn't get like the people that he wanted to backstage. I've heard like multiple things. So it was probably a concoction of multiple things and he was probably just fed up that night. He was probably no, no matter what happened, he was he was mad. He was very very mad. Mad enough to Pete Townsend his base. He just completely smashed that. Now the photographer who got that her name was Penny Smith. She got that on a whim. Like she didn't she says she doesn't know like why she took it, but she just happened to snap the best photo in rock and roll history of just him mid smash with the base. And I absolutely, I, I love this photo. She said she doesn't like the picture either. She said it's out of focus, like don't use that. They, The Clash loved this album, this uh, this photo for the album. So they took that. And then if you notice the words London Calling are down, London going downwards in pink and then calling across the bottom in green. That's an homage to Elvis Presley's first album. He has the same kind of lettering, says Elvis Presley going across the, the album like that. So it's kind of an homage to like rockabilly, like the the roots of rock, and that's what they were really into. That you know, like that's what uh, Joe Strummer's influences were was you know American music, like roots rock, that kind of stuff. He he really enjoyed that kind of stuff, and so he wanted to put those elements into there. And I think it worked really well, to be completely honest. So well that you know I, I like it so much that that's what I decided to use for our our logo. If you noticed that our uh, my very good friend Geneva Zentmeyer, she helped me design the logo for this podcast. So it's based off of. Both the the Clash and Elvis's album, I think it you know complements both of them. To be completely honest, and I think that they're both like a, a great reflection in the point of rock and roll. Because when you look at when Al- Elvis's first album was released, that was the very beginning, basically, of the rock and roll era. This is when rock and roll was still kind of being figured out and discussed, and there's almost like a different feeling of of rock and roll to element to you know the Elvis album. And then looking at the album cover for London Calling, how how much has grown within just that small time frame of years of coming from here to here and what rock is back then and what it is now. And it's just crazy just that jump of being, you know, classic rockabilly like Elvis versus, you know, smashing your instruments on stage and setting fires and becoming more than just rock stars, becoming gods, basically, at that point. Yeah, at, at, that, at that point in time, definitely. I mean, The Clash really didn't last that long, but in that short period of time, between, like, 76, 77, and then, like, early 80s, I'd say between, like, maybe, like, 83 and 84, 
they were yeah they were absolutely huge and i you know what, what i like about them they they get, they still are considered punk you know like when people talk about them they're like oh they're, they're a punk band because i think like them i could be wrong about this but i think the the four main punk bands that are in the rock and roll hall of fame aren't the clash the stooges the sex pistols and the ramones the I'd say the Clash are kind of the outlier of that group because yes, they do have punk elements, especially like I said in their first two albums. They're they're self-titled, and then their second album, Give Them Enough Rope, very punk. There, there definitely is punk. But by this album, they went out of their comfort zone, like I said, and I really appreciate that because it kind of showed that they didn't care what people were thinking about them anymore. They they were having fun with the music that they, that they were doing, and something I something I found out that I didn't know before uh, you know, doing the research for this podcast, something very interesting. So they actually had departed ways with their one manager, Bernie Rhodes, by the time this album was coming out. Bernie Rhodes was the manager for their first two albums. And if you listen to Give Them Enough Rope, which is their second album, you can kind of tell that it's not bad. It's definitely a good album, but you can tell that they're, you know, it's getting a little stale and you can tell they're tired. They're not having a good time. They got this dude named Guy Stevens for as as their manager, or was it producer? I can't remember exactly. But anyway, this this dude Guy Stevens, he was in the studio for the recording of London Calling. Dude was an absolute maniac. Now, when I say maniac, I mean like he was unfortunately he was really effed up on drugs and alcohol, as most people at this time were. But like worse than most people. But the the, the sad thing is, is that like stuff like that was not regard it as an issue like it would back, be today day, if, yeah. if if you had somebody in your studio doing the stuff that guy stevens was doing back in 1979 he was like throwing chairs and he was just like jumping all over the place you know but he did that for a reason he did it to keep this rock and roll lifestyle this rock and roll feeling in the in the area of the recording studio so like you kind of had that vibe and it kind of kept the vibe up. It kept them in that mindset to be writing these songs. And it, I, honestly, it went a long way. Because when I listen to this album, you can tell they're having fun. You can tell that they're having a really good time recording this. And, like, their their songwriting abilities have gone way up, you know. Paul Simonon actually finally learned how to play his bass correctly. The first two albums, not that he was bad before, but he was very amateur. And, like, he had been playing so much that, like, he was getting really, really good. Kind of like how uh, Nikki Six from um, Motley Crue, like, began the band not learning how to yeah. play, not knowing how to play bass at all. And exactly. And he was just kind of just bullshitting. He even, and then, he, yeah. Like, learning how to play somewhat. Exactly, yeah. I think even ZZ Top, not, not Dusty Hill, Billy Gibbons. Billy Gibbons said that uh, he didn't really know how to play when he first started. He said, you learn really well when you're getting beer bottles thrown at you. You learn how to play really fast. Like So if, if you're just constantly doing it, you're going to pick it up. And that's that's what happened with Paul Simon. And he finally learned how to play his bass really well, well enough to where he was even starting to write songs. He, his his very first song is on this album. It's called Guns of Brixton. He, he sang and he wrote it, I think, mostly because, like, one, he wanted to contribute to the album, but also because you get money when you write songs. You know, you're not, you're not really getting the money from just playing on the albums. You have to actually contribute and write the songs. So he's finally getting some writing credits. And I'm not exactly sure which ones he wrote after London Calling, but Guns of Brixton, I know for a fact, is a Paul Simonon song. Some of the other songs that I really, really enjoy... Uh, I mentioned Rudy Can't Fail already. That's probably going to be one of my favorites. Lost in the Supermarket is amazing. The the one I think I also mentioned, but I want to bring up again because this song actually kind of like cracks me up. I'm not going to lie. It's called The Right Profile. I don't know if you know this one, Austin. I, I'm i not f- too familiar with it because it's been a while since I've listened to like a Clash album in its entirety versus just like specific songs. I got you. Especially London Calling. 
Why don't you refresh my memory on that, Chris? So this this particular song is written about uh, Montgomery Clift, the the actor Montgomery Clift from like you know classic Hollywood. Uh, Josh Trummer actually mentions a few movies in the very beginning of the song. He was in Red River, Place in the Sun, The Misfits, and From Here to Eternity. So four like really amazing pictures that Monty Cliff was in. Now the thing with Montgomery Clift was he was in a really really bad car accident at one point. He was always regarded as a very handsome person, a very handsome man, and when he got in that car accident... He got Gary busey Basically, yeah, it really, really messed up his face, and so it just, like, completely, you know, damaged his face. So that's what this song is about. But that's not the hilarious part. I wouldn't laugh at that. The, the funny part is, I actually have it all queued up right here, just how unhinged Joe Strummer gets in this part of the song. I don't know what it is, but it always gets me, always cracks me up. Just, just listen... I'm gonna just I'm gonna play it. Just listen to this. <laughs> Every single time, it, it, it's I don't know, I don't know. Something about it is just so gosh darn funny to me. I, I, I can't help it. To me, I think it's just the funny idea of just like when I also get so mad, like uh, mad to a certain extent. I just can't formulate proper sentences. I can only make noises. Just noises come out. That's like, all you need sometimes. I get, I get so mad that I can't talk. Exactly. I can only just... <laughs> just grunt and make noises like an animal. Oh my god, zoo. we just revert back to cavemen, just grunt at each other. <laughs> we de-evolution ourselves. <laughs> Angry. <laughs> Angry monkey. Yes, that part in the song is is very very hilarious. I don't know how he was able to keep a straight face. He probably wasn't or, to be completely honest. Or even anyone in the studio. Just the fact that they're like stopping mid sentence just to make a bunch of mumbled jumbled. That, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about, though. It sounds like they're having a really good time. Like I I wish I was a fly on the wall for the recording sessions for London Calling because it just it just sounds like it's a really good time. Imagine like I Steven just being absolutely crazy and just like throwing shit and just you know like jumping off the walls and just keeping this energy going and then. They're all having a really good time. I, w- I would just love to, to see that in action. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. It'd be like witnessing a, a, a meteorite or, or, or a falling star or something like that. Just something that is just like a once-in-a-lifetime, like, wow. Yeah. Especially in the music industry where it doesn't feel like it's a job or you're a musician. It's, it's almost like if the parents left the house for the weekend and they were like, they left their child, their uh, their teenage son at home, and they were like, "All right, like see you in see you in three days." And that child has now uh, suddenly a flood of access to I can do whatever we, I want, and there's no limitations to what we can and can't do. Basically, that's a pretty good analogy. That, that that's kind of how the album sounds, to be completely honest. And you, oh yeah, you can definitely tell in just how even for a punk band, just how engulfed they are in their atmosphere, where it's like this is my crowd. You know, like you can have them play, you, you can have Lennon Calling just, it's almost a, it's what makes the album better is just the story behind it, not just the album, but just the sole purpose of the, the chaos of, of, of the music industry, uh, especially when it's at such an era where you are involved in it more than you'll ever know, but you're not going to know until the future. Exactly. Like, it, it, like, I'm sure when they were making that, they weren't like Pink Floyd, where they were kind of like we think that this is going to change something. It's just something that ended up blowing up. Yeah, like, no, I mean, no one makes they, no one makes music thinking that, 
I am go. This is going to go down as the greatest album. Of I don't all think time. they thought that. They they did definitely want to be heard by as many people as possible, but I don't think they were. I don't. I don't think they had the mindset that they were making like this huge cultural impact. But they they really did for not just not just the punk genre, but for but for rock and roll in general. Yeah. What I find very funny about the Clash is how bad with money that they were. They were absolutely awful with money. They were broke almost the entire time because they they had this they had this kind of like ethos where they didn't want to charge money or that much money for their they, they their... wanted to just play music. And this is at a time where like you could see the Rolling Stones for like five dollars. But five dollars was more back then than, than it oh, is yeah, now. Versus now. But then again, uh, I'm also paying four hundred dollars for lawn seat if I want to go see the Rolling Stones. Or uh just a thousand dollars in a leg if you want to see Bruce Springsteen. It's listen, man, I'm not even a Springsteen fan, but I will say one of the best performers at a live oh, event yeah, no. I have ever seen. They did that he did this when I saw him probably like it almost eight years ago at this point. Um, they did this really interesting camera trick where I had never seen this before, but I thought it was amazing. He obviously loves his crowd and loves interacting with the crowd. That's, and money. And yes, obviously, that's why <laughs> he's charging all this money to go see him now. But he, at one point, he just throws himself in the crowd, starts crowd surfing, and above the ceiling, they have a tracking camera. So as he's getting crowd surfed to the, the back of the venue now, He's singing into a microphone while the camera above him is tracking him getting passed down the back. Which that's, that's pretty cool. Which I thought was really interesting that they showed that. I had personally never seen that before. That's pretty cool and to have seen. I'm you, sure you might have. It, it was. It felt like a movie. It was like a movie trick. I was like, I didn't know that you could hang cameras from the ceiling like that at the Wells Fargo Center. Wow. I yeah. I have to. If I ever get the chance to, you know, sell some of my organs, I'll definitely have to go to uh, see Bruce Springsteen it's, concert. You know, trust me. Even if you're not a big Springsteen fan, just that energy alone, like he did uh, the Isley Brothers shout at the very end of the show. But it wasn't. No, no, no. It wasn't just the Isley Brothers song. It was the Isley Brothers song. From the Animal House, the oh, Animal House version. Wow. Where he's doing callbacks to the audience. That's the best version. Where he'll sing it and then he'll point the microphone to the crowd and they repeat it. And just that energy alone was just absolutely crazy. I love that. I wish I could have experienced the energy at a class show, but unfortunately they were broken up and, and Joe Strummer passed away when I was really young, so I'm never going to get that experience. But that's, that's always the worst part about getting into music, especially for our age where it's just like, basically everything's almost like done like i'll never forget like when i first asked my mom i'm like hey can i go see like nirvana and she's like uh about that <laughs> i was like what do you mean he killed himself he said he didn't have a gun in the song he said it like 18 times what the f what hurt <laughs> oh my god i know dude it, it sucks there's you always gotta accept the fact that there's some groups that we'll never ever see and talking, the, the the clash is is one of them, and that's, Talking Heads is another one. Talking Heads is another one. Talking Heads is sadly another one of them, but, and it really is sad though. Just like kind of not being able to witness history, yeah, like that, and being like, this will never happen again. And even if it does, it won't be as good as it used to be. Exactly. You know, you know what I find uh, kind of humorous that uh, that list of albums that I, I read off a little bit ago. It's uh, it, it's kind of a diverse list, I'd say, for for music, at least in rock music. 
And I, I'd say people like you and I in, in today's modern age would, would look at this and just be like, oh, these are all really good classic rock albums and, you know, just, you know, classic 70s albums. But back then, I feel like it would kind of divide people. You know what I mean? I feel like the people who are listening to The Cars and who are listening to Super Tramp are not the same people who are listening to The Clash. I just find that kind of funny. I don't I don't think The Clash, like, really even enjoyed, like, half of this list to be completely honest you know yeah, what I mean? if, you, if you were like oh do you listen to michael jackson they would be like who's that no they would they, they probably would know who it was but they would probably say uh, just some crappy pop music and stuff like yeah, that you like, know oh, what i mean like oh it's okay it's kind of funny though it's i like just thing. looking at you know looking at all these not even album wise but just like genre rise or the wise as uh, as you can tell i'm having a brain aneurysm it's okay you can die in here. It's okay. Okay, fine by me. I'll haunt the recording studio. Oh, yeah. The uh, ghost of Studio C. This is B. The ghost of Studio... Even as a ghost, I'm confused. You're just not able to go through C to B. You just have exactly. to... I have to use the door <laughs> like, a, like, like a living human. But, uh, no, what, you know, like... Like I was saying, like just just looking at this list, it makes me realize like how much good music was coming out in '79, and that's why that's why I think like 1979 was just the best year for music. Definitely not the best year to be an American in Iran, but definitely <laughs> rock the gas <laughs> But definitely the best year for music, in my humblest opinion. Just saying. I mean, at the end of the day, when you look at just that small, basically small list alone, you can just see. Album-wise, music-wise, genre-wise. There, you said it again. So I just That's your second aneurysm in, like, less than two minutes. I just can't get it right. I don't know what it is about that word, Chris. It's okay, buddy. Just go listen to some Beatles albums. You'll be all right. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that'll fix my brain damage. No, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, I, I did what you said, and I listened to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds on repeat 137 times. And uh, I think I've discovered uh, the codes to enter the Pentagon. <laughs> I've also noticed uh, the, the, the Beatles kind of suck. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> like this. <laughs> I would be so surprised if you just came up to me and you're like, you know what I realized? The Beatles kind of suck. Like you've been right the entire time. You've been saying, you're trying to tell me like all these years I get that it. you hate. I, I, I get, get it, it now. now. They have no good songs. They should never have existed. Oh, uh, I would wake. I'd, I'd be like, obviously, this is a drug-induced nightmare. Chris would. Chris wouldn't say that about the Beatles. And you know what? Screw Bob Dylan too. <laughs> what has he ever done? I'd be like, all right, and obviously this isn't Christopher that I'm talking to. I believe in Limp Biscuit supremacy. Cut his mic. Cut his mic. <laughs> Cut his mic. <laughs> Get him out of here. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it, it seems like we are starting to wind down on the time right here, Austin. So I think I'm going to cut it. Uh, uh, let me do my thank you. Thank you for listening to Fantastic Classics. If you'd like to hear more, we drop a new episode every Tuesday on Spotify, Apple Music, and pretty much everywhere you get your podcasts. Fantastic Classics is recorded at CSB Media Arts Center in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Our intro and outro music is done by my friend Ryan Loader, and our logo was done by my friend Geneva Zentmeyer. You can find Ryan's band Dead Season on Spotify, Apple Music, and any other streaming services, and on his Instagram at DeadSeasonNJ. And you can find Geneva's art on Instagram at ArtGarbage. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening.